We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good evening, everyone. 807 in the Twin Cities. Time now for one of my favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. How are you? cold like everybody else. All right, but you're really cold. Now, you are actually uh, at your cabin in Wisconsin. How cold is it? It's 10 below. It's going to go to 20 below. Wow. Now, now the joke that I've been doing today on my Facebook page, I did this quick thing and see if you can go catch the theme here. I said, okay, so winter in Minnesota, my lunch would be cold cuts. Um, I did cold cuts, iceberg lettuce, snow peas, and then washing it down with cold duck. And so I was asking people, can we come up with other food things <laughs> that have references like that? That is so bad, it's good. It's, it's so That's bad. so I bad, it's good. That's right. And so, so I had people do anywhere from like <laughs> cold ice, duck. iced tea, et cetera, et cetera. But somebody did do a good local advertisement and said, well, of course, I'd have a Dairy Queen blizzard. So um, There you go. Do they still make cold duck? Isn't that, no that sweet, sweet wineish kind of thing? Yeah, I have no idea. So maybe one of the listeners can sort of, t- you know, send you an email if, if, if they know about that. But I don't even know. But it was something like, I would say, in my misspent youth. Um, I, well, that was my, I was just thinking my misspent youth, a, a very bad one-time only ever experience. with. Yes, product. I think I had it once also. So <laughs> so anyhow, it was also about frozen yogurt. We had all these different frozen daiquiris. So this would, this would be the ideal lunch in Minnesota with all these words that have like cold or ice or, <laughs> oh my or something in it. Oh might, my I, might I make a suggestion? Yes. Don't yes. forget about a Wendy's Frosty. A Wendy's Frosty. Ooh, there's Jonathan. That's right. So so, so there's probably a ton of them out there we can come up with them. All right. Well, I'm actually sitting in. I don't know. It's. I mean, Jonathan's sort of just in a regular kind of long sleeve T-shirt. I've been wearing my coat. I don't know if it's that that it's that cold in the studio, but I just there's there's a monitor in front of me that says one degree, and I just Mm -hmm. can't take my coat off. It's just. Well, feels better that way. Well, that way too. Also, I don't know about you. I, I just, you're outside, you get kind of like this cold that gets into your chest or your bones or something like that. And I just have like a, I have a, a light coat out in our cabin also. Just maybe it's for the same reason. I don't know. Ooh. Uh, just, uh, well, be safe up there because, yeah. and folks who are in more rural areas, be safe because this is obviously something that uh, you don't want to get out in and you don't want to get stuck in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, let's talk about, once again, we have just... You can't make this stuff up. Just when you think it's gotten as crazy as it can be, it seems to get even crazier with it, the president. It does. I was going to say, this past week, some of people might remember there was a famous George Carlin routine about the seven dirty words that you can't say. We're certainly not going to say them on the air for all kinds of reasons. I feel like this week one of them almost got taken off um, that list because what was interesting, and we're obviously not going to use that word here today where he referred to um, certain countries you know, you know, as you know, as S-holes. Um, but the fact that a lot of the mainstream media chose to even print out that word and use it on the air uh, really sort of suggests how sort of unusual of an in political environment we're in at this point where we're having to discuss, you know, the president's, you know, use of those kind of words, that kind of a word. It's, it's um, you know, it's also been sort of an incredibly volatile time with this book that that's out yeah. there. We actually talked about it with uh, Jane Kirtley. Uh, you know, the the book is deeply flawed, 
Yes. And, and you know, there's no question about mm-hmm. that. There are scenarios and conversations mm-hmm. with all these quotes. You don't know where they're coming from, what mm-hmm. the source is. Was he there? Was he not there? Was there a tape recorder? Mm-hmm. It, 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 there's just an awful lot of problems there. But after reading the book, there's still the image there of a presidency that that is not in control. Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to say, folks, and, and I'm not doing a great job explaining this because there are problems with this book, but the overall portrait does jive with other depictions and other news accounts. Enough of it does that it really raises a host. It raises a host of questions at all levels. I, think. I was going to agree. I, mean, I know you read the book. I read the book last week, and I actually posted sort of my comments on the book last week also. And and. And the other thing I was going to say is that I don't know about you. I actually found the book kind of boring. You know, at one, you know, I didn't think it was that well written. Kind of boring. It was terribly written, I thought, and, yeah, and it, it, it was it, sort of it, sloppy. And it's just, yeah. uh, but but I did find certain things right and right. fascinating. I mean, I mean, I, I do think it was fascinating. I found the account of the election night mm-hmm. really riveting. And there, this writer's account of the election night is that. They really, really did not think they were going to win. That Kellyanne Conway had already started negotiating mm-hmm. for cable, you know, talk, to be sort of a talking head mm-hmm. on a cable show, which I know people who work at some of the cable networks, and I, that was true. Mm-hmm. She was talking to them, and that the president, you know, president candidate Donald Trump thought by winning or by running and not winning against Hillary Clinton, he could build his brand. He would be the the one of the most He's already one of the most famous people in the world, but that it would just help his ba- brand, help his business, and he could blame it all on, quote, crooked Hillary. Exactly. And uh, his son, there's a reference there to one of his sons saying that night uh, Donald Trump looked as white as a ghost when it became obvious that he was likely going to win. I, so I thought that was really fascinating. The ba- Steve Bannon obviously did talk to him a lot. Mm-hmm. And Steve Bannon, I guess, is... Uh, does he, is there a future for Steve Bannon now that he's been bounced out of Breitbart News? I think it's hard because at this point, Donald Trump has clearly taken over the Republican Party. I'm going to give you some statistics on this in a second here. Taken over the Republican Party and the fund. And so when Bannon trying to take on Trump you know, in the last few weeks and, and between that and the book, he's pretty much put himself outside of, of wherever the Republican Party is right now and that's going to make it difficult for him to find, I think, a new forum because he was really forced out of Breitbart News by the people who were funding that that organization. He's kind of a person now who's on the outs with Trump, on the outs with the Republican Party, on the outs even in some cases with the funders of, of some of the alt-right. For him to find sort of a, a new, new organ or place won't be impossible, but it's going to be hard because you would think somebody like him – might, under different circumstances, have a place where, perhaps on Fox or something like that, I don't think they would hire him. I, I think he's a really persona non grata, at least in the short term. Right. Um, going back to these comments about these countries that have sparked yet another furor, I mean, to me, is this different or is this just another one of these incidents where, where President Trump says things that are would not normally be considered at all presidential and it kind of just everything just kind of goes along. 
Well, it's interesting, you know, several times during his candidacy and during his, his presidency, you know, whether it's the comments about John McCain or about Mexicans or about women, we always sort of mused and thought that is this sort of a turning point and is it something different? And it's maybe too soon to tell, especially with the women's comments, because, you know, we're going to be seeing the 2018 midterm elections and there are indications that women are, are highly energized this time in the ways they weren't back in 16. But there does seem to be something that feels different about these comments than in the past. You know, partly it is the, the international reaction, of course, in terms of how it has tremendously alienated us from probably just about every country in the world. But even the Republican Party, what's been fascinating over the last 24 to 48 hours is to look at the reaction within the Republican Party in terms of, of a significant distancing you know, from, from Donald Trump. Or in the case of, let's say, you know, Senator Cotton, who was there going out of his, at that at meeting, going out of his way to sort of say, I don't recall those words exactly. There, but, there just some, but something does feel different here in terms of reaction. Um, and the turning points that I can think of, and I don't know if it's there, you know, this is sort of like history, is thinking back when, when um, the McCarthy hearings were going on back in the 1950s, and it wasn't until, you know, was it Major Walsh, you know, said to, you know, Joe McCarthy, have you no sense of shame, no sense of decency, where McCarthy came down. And you get the sense that something happened with these statements the other day that, that has really right. transformed, I think, how many people um, think about Trump. But still, I don't think it's going to dramatically Or his base, I don't think it's going to have any impact. His, his base is none. Now, let me give you a couple of interesting statistics. I gave about three talks this week, and the whole theme of my talks this week were on how polarized is the United States at this point. And, and just one little statistic is really fascinating here. When, when you ask a presidential approval question, you know, do you generally approve of the performance of the president of the United States? If you ask Democrats, 9% of Democrats approve of the performance of, of Donald Trump. When you ask it of people who consider themselves to be Republican, it's 82% of Republicans. I mean, that is an enormous gap. Donald Trump is more popular than Congress as a whole, which wouldn't be hard to do, mm -hmm. and be more popular than any single member of Congress in the United States. And that's partly why, at this point, I think Republicans in Congress are hesitant to turn on him because he is still more popular than they are among the base. Well. You know, I, I will say that I did hear from um, a number of people um, that I've you know, come to know in the Somali-American community here, and I just – the outrage, the anger, um, the fury over those comments uh, is profound mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and understandably so. Oh, yes. Okay. Understandably so. And um, I haven't been able to respond to everybody, but I, I just uh, – I've heard that, and um, I think a lot of people – are, are with you. and it's, it's, it's hard to figure out what was worse to me, the hatefulness of the statements or just, you know, I'm going to describe it as the outright ignorance of the statements. I mean, I think, for example, where you, you know, if these, all these statements are correct, you know, that all Haitians have AIDS, people in Nigeria live in huts. And I look at this and I think this is, I'm, I'm not sure if, if it's more racist um, or, 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 or ignorance that we're looking at or a combination of the two just right. in terms of his perceptions of the world. Um, well, we do have to take a quick um, break, but, you know, uh, perceptions of the world, I mean, obviously there was a trip to England that was canceled this week. Um, there's continued concerns about uh, 
international relations. Certainly, we can talk about the situation in Hawaii, poor Hawaii. Obviously, people there on edge because of the situation, I would imagine, with North Korea. But let's talk about foreign policy and how that unpredictability is, is continuing to factor in when it comes to our allies and our enemies. That's coming up next with Professor Schultz on News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It It is 821 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy chatting with Professor David Schultz. Uh, Really a remarkable situation in, in Hawaii today where an alert went out saying that this was not a drill, that the entire the islands of Hawaii was, were going to be under attack from a ballistic missile. And I have to think that some of, of the reaction there, and obviously people took it seriously because it said it, this was coming from the state system, is the concern about North Korea and the volatility in the relationship or, or lack of relationship uh, with uh, President Trump and North Korea. And certainly, there, and, and to be fair, there has not been a relationship with past presidents, North Korea, but there has not been this sort of back and forth. Right. Uh, and, and elevation of tensions uh, that I can remember. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I don't remember it. I don't remember the 50s because I wasn't born. But uh, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I think you're absolutely correct. Is that, is that under a different scenario, um, a, a mistake like this wouldn't have caused the same type of, I think, furor. But a combination of the fact that we have, of course, North Korea now that has had several successful testings of missiles, which which now appear to have the capacity to perhaps reach um, places as, you know, as, as Hawaii and maybe within the coming year, you know, mainland United States. So you have that potential there, along with the fact that we have never have had good relationship with North Korea, but at least we had some kind of mutual understanding about not going to war. Now, you know, you know, Trump's, you know Trump's rhetoric, North Korean president's rhetoric, um, it's enough to really sort of scare people in terms of thinking the fact that that this could happen at this point, and we see Trump every so often, you know, you know, you know, reiterating sort of these threats. You know, the the one that, you know, was what the last the last week or so about talking about um, about having a nuclear button on his desk that was bigger than the nuclear button that they had in um, in North Korea. You know, getting beyond the testosterone politics there. I mean, it's that kind of rhetoric that I think scares people, um, not just in Hawaii and the United States, but really all across the world. And our allies, for example, in Japan and in South Korea are very concerned also about this. I should also point out, too, is that I don't know if you knew about this, that we do not have um, um, right now a U.S. ambassador to South Korea. Um, we Trump has not filled that position. Now, it's not to say that we don't have people in the embassy staff over there, but you would think with Korea... It's, it was just such a critical position Chris, in the fact, I mean... The Olympics yes. are going to be there. I mean, this yes. is a major, major ally. Yes, it is. And given the tensions that are going on, one would think that more attention would be, would be placed to even South Korea. But Trump administration, this gets back to, you know, the, you know, the, the Fire and Fury book, is that there seems to be within this administration a, a, a constantly shooting from the hip, a, a sense of disorganization, a sense in which, you know, Trump's not consulting with either his defense or diplomatic staffs or his State Department people in, in terms of how do we think through these issues, certainly not consulting with our international allies in Japan or in South Korea um, or, or even, you know, with China to figure out how to, to, to work these things. And so all of this comes back, again, connecting what we were talking about before break here, is that 
this it does create a picture of, of, of a presidency that that really is out of control or not in control. And that's the part from the book that I think that's captured well that sort of goes along with all this other stuff that we're seeing. But clearly people in in, in Hawaii um, have, you know, I could, I could understand their worry, not understand what they were going through. No, absolutely. If I got saw that kind of message I, and I was in Hawaii, I would feel the same thing. Yeah. Uh, the president canceled his trip to uh, the UK. It was supposed to take place in February, saying he didn't like the new embassy. He didn't that the old embassy had been sold for peanuts. Uh, there are also reports, though, that he was concerned that there would be massive protest. Uh, you travel overseas a great deal. Your thoughts on this one? Well, well, first off, um, he also blamed the Obama administration on that deal for the embassy, when in fact that was first negotiated by the Bush administration. And I've also read some accounts that have suggested that given how much we sold the old property for the old embassy location, we essentially built the new embassy for almost nothing. And so, so there's also sort of you know, a twisting of facts there. But, yes, I was going to say that I'm going to be, and as you mentioned, you know, I, I travel a lot. Um, you know, I'm going to be again this spring you know, for a couple of weeks teaching in Lithuania and Belarus. Um, and, and, they're, and they're very interested in me, to, you know, and I'm talking about trying to understand the Trump presidency. In fact, I'm going to go back in May, um, and the, the Lithuanian Military Academy, which is sort of their version of, of our West Point, has asked me to come out for a week to try to explain to them in a class how to think through and understand the Trump presidency. And the point being is that all across Europe, when I talk to colleagues in a lot of the schools I've been at, they can't, you know, they're, they're almost like us. They can't make sense out of what Trump's what Trump's doing, and the sense of distrust or fear that, for example, we won't support like Lithuania or any of the NATO allies if something were to happen with Russia. Um, all of this, I think, is a um, is, is grounds for us being being concerned, and not just the leaders, but again, people across across these countries. Are, are, are very, very um, likely to protest, you know, if Donald Trump comes, comes to their country. Is, is it, you know, when you travel overseas, is it more just sort of kind of questioning, you know, how he won the presidency or, or what might be next or sort of all of the above? Part, part of it, how he won the presidency, too, a lot of it is trying to understand something about um, what can presidents do? Like, what kind of power do they have and authority? And, and one of the things that I, you know, and I say this to my American students too, is I say that presidents are are dramatically more constrained constitutionally within the United States than they are in terms of how they act internationally. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah. That's and, an interesting and within point. the United States, you know, the whole concept of a constitution, bill of rights, checks and balances, and so forth. We've seen. Um, a lot of limits placed on what Trump can do, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the Muslim travel bans or other actions. He still has to go through Congress to get things done. But internationally, presidents have a lot more leeway to do things and, more importantly, not to do certain things. And I think that's the bigger concern um, internationally is what he chooses not to do, which is disengaging the United States from, from the sort of the international arena. Um, um, Henry Luce, you know, who was the founder of Time Magazine, yes. Life and That, you know, coined that wonderful phrase back during World War II that this was going to be the American century. And the whole concept of us creating the American century was the idea of saying that what? That our internationalism, our activism in the U.N., our activism organizations, 
we basically remade the world in the in the in the well, in the eyes of the United States. And partly why we've been so dominant is because of that. And and Trump's retreating from our commitments, retreating from all these different from treaties, from from TPP, from the Paris Accords, um, really has a dramatic impact in terms of creating power vacuums in the world that get filled by by Russia, they get filled by China, they get filled by by non-democratic regimes. And and that's the concern that I think is is, is that I hear when I talk to my colleagues or I talk to faculty or students from around the world is the fact that we're retreating from that role of where we were defending human rights, democracy, defending um, a, a vision of the world that is, is really under threat right now. All right. That is David Schultz, folks. We do have to take a break. We've got to give you the weather forecast, which is pretty brutal. I'll tell you that. Uh, when we come back, though, I'd like to chat with uh, Professor Schultz about his thoughts about our new senator, Tina Smith. Uh, she is having to go quickly, you know, just within – Hours of being sworn in to shift into running for re-election. I guess it's not running for re-election. Well, ask Professor, Professor Schultz about how he would describe what exactly she's – it's – it's, I guess it is re-election. We'll ask him. All right. First, folks, let's take a break. We'll give you some weather and more with David Schultz after this. It is 836 down to minus one in the Twin Cities. Did you hear that forecast, uh, Professor David Schultz? I did. That's brutal. <laughs> That's brutal. I know. All right, folks. Um, and you're up in Wisconsin where you reported earlier that it was minus 10 up there. So Correct. I have no idea even what the wind chill is at this point. Don't I'm go not, outside. And I'm, not, I'm not even measuring my nose out the door. I know. Okay. Um, all right. Let me ask you your thoughts on Senator Tina Smith. It, it, it does seem still staggering to me uh, that, that the career of Senator Franken came to such a, a speedy, remarkably swift end. Mm-hmm. I mean – how does she fare going forward? Well, well, it's going to be tough. I say that. There's an interesting st- set of statistics out there that Larry Sabaton, who's at the University of Virginia, did some computing in terms of looking at what has happened in terms of the success rate for individuals who are appointed um, as, as senators over time versus those who are running for re-election. And the re-election rate for incumbents is actually quite high. We know that. But for those who've been appointed, the re-election rate is barely 50 percent. Really? Okay, I had not heard that. Yeah, it's a fascinating – But is it, is, it, is it always so quick within a year? No, that's the other part that's interesting about it is that in some situations the he was computing not just you know situations where it was you know, like within a year in some situations you have across states states have different policies for how how persons are are filled in terms of their vacancies when there's a, a senatorial vacancy and it also depends on when in the term you know some will have a somebody who gets appointed who then fills out the rest of the term, whether it's one year, two years, three years, five years, or something like that. Some it has to be moving immediately to an election. All kinds of possibilities. But what he looked at overall throughout history since, you know, actually since the 20th century, since senators became elected, because up until 19, was it 16 or something like that, senators were appointed, you know, by state legislatures. But the history of appointed senators uh, by governors to fill out vacancies and then running for re-election um, is barely half of them win re-election. Wow. And I have to think, especially in this situation here, where she will have 
the power of incumbency, if we can call it that, not even for 11, barely 11 months, because she takes office in early January. Right. I'm going to guess what, the election is what, November 5th or 6th or yeah. that this year. So let's say roughly she has 11 months. Um, this is going to be very difficult um, because she really won't have that much of an opportunity to establish the kind of, again, incumbency that somebody who really has served out a six-year term would have, on top of which, as you pointed out, she has to hit the ground running. Not only does she have to establish herself as a senator and do her job, but she immediately has to what? hit the campaign trail, and at the same time, she has to worry about the, the cost of running for a U.S. Senate seat. Now, the, the average cost in 2016 for somebody running for the U.S. Senate was $12 million. That's for the winning campaign. Wow. Take that in terms of the fact that if, 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 if all she had to raise was the average, she's going to have to raise about a million dollars a month. I think this is going to be way more expensive than a, than a $12 million race because this is going to be a race that attracts national attention. There's no question about it in terms of the fact that it could determine, the, whoever wins this one could determine who controls the U.S. Senate. I wouldn't be surprised if she has to raise $20 million between now and Election Day to be able to pull this off. So she's facing those enormous fundraising issues at the same time. I am still not persuaded that she won't face a challenge within the Democratic Party because if she looks like she's vulnerable in the next couple of months, if it looks like she's not gaining traction, I wouldn't be surprised if one or two Democrats decide to enter the race simply because they, would, they think, A, they, they can beat her, and B, um, she looks vulnerable. You know, let me um – it's it's interesting because I mean I think she's and she certainly has hit the ground running. I mean yeah. she's a, a very personable, um, appealing person, but she's somebody who who has not run for office before. Well, except so, for lieutenant governor, not in her own right. Well, not in her own right. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly, you know, that doesn't. You know, I mean, I, President Trump had never really officially run before. He talked about it. Right. right. Um, but he also, but he also had a name recognition. And some money to, to to move his candidacy, and I am not persuaded that Tina Smith was a household name. I mean, I think you could speak to this better than I am. She she wasn't. She people know who Mark Dayton is, who knew, knew who Amy Klobuchar is, Al Franken. I suspect there were a lot of people who would not have known who Tina Smith was. Right. Well, I actually, and this is kind of remarkable. I did a short story, a short story, short uh, piece uh, on her. Uh, she was a guest on our WCCO-TV Sunday morning show uh, last week, um, the 1030 show, and then I did like kind of a talking points piece about her name recognition, how she's going to have to hit the ground running. I cited a report um, that was commissioned last year when she was thinking of running for governor. Mm-hmm. It said that 80 percent of Minnesotans – it's for the, the Terrence group or uh, T-A-R-R-E-N-C-E mm-hmm. group said that more than 80 percent of Minnesotans did not know – who she was. This is from 2017, so sometime last year, because she was thinking about running for governor. Right. So this story aired at 10 o'clock last Sunday night. Mm-hmm. By 8 o'clock in the morning, the National Republican Senatorial Committee sent out a letter quoting that story. Wow. I mean, I, I was just I was I was completely blown away because I mean and that happens you know when when it's a hotly contested rate you get these national um, organizations or national you know Democratic senatorial committee or Republican you know they're watching they're watching right. these races are a big deal but I was stunned 
that that there was that quick a turnaround on a story that aired at ten o'clock at night mm-hmm. in the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know your what your thoughts. I mean, what does that say to you? Well, it's, it's, this is going to again. This is going to be a very contested race. And think about it, because this is a seat that Norm Coleman gets when he wins it when Paul Wellstone's planes crashes. Of course, then several years, six years later, uh, arguably the, one of the closest, maybe the closest Senate race in U.S. history, where eventually you have Al Franken defeating Norm Coleman after protracted late litigation, um, fights fought out in the court, and he only wins by a few hundred votes. I think the Republicans have always sort of felt like that Franken didn't deserve to win this seat, and now Franken's out, and they perceive an opportunity to pick up and, and, and retake this seat. They have what they're going to view as essentially somebody who's going to barely have incumbency, almost treating this as an open seat at a time when the Senate is 51-49 um, right now. The odds of the Democrats taking back the U.S. Senate are, are kind of slim because they would have to win. There's, there's going to be that 34th, I think it's, is it 34 or 35? I think it's 35 um, seats, I think it is, up for election this year. All but 10 of them um, are, are held by Democrats. They're going to have to hold all of their seats and pick up two Republicans. If the Republicans can, can pick off this seat and win this seat, I think it becomes impossible for the Democrats to win, to win control of the U.S. Senate. So this seat is central to, I think, both the Democrats and Republicans' designs in terms of control of the Senate, as well as there's a lot of, I would say, what Republicans' revenge here. Back in 2008, by the time we added up all the money that was spent between Franken and Coleman, third-party groups and so forth, I calculated back then somewhere between about 35 to $50 million that was spent. And the reason why I have a big range there is because we don't know all the where all that money was and how much money truly was spent, I'm going to bet this race is a 50 to $60 million race. This particular Senate this race? Senate race. By the time you throw wow. in the money the candidates will have to raise, yeah. third-party money, um, um, you know, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the Republican that, I'm going to put us – I'll be conservative – it's going to be $50 million. Wow. Okay. But let me ask you this about the Republicans. So far, the only you know major Republican who's announced, and she's certainly not a household name, although perhaps her husband is, mm-hmm. is um, State Senator Karen Housley from the Woodbury area. Her her uh, husband, she and she was elected to the State Senate, I believe, in 2012. Mm-hmm. Her husband is NHL great, mm-hmm. Phil Housley, who's actually coach of the Buffalo Sabres, their hockey team. Um I, where's Tim Pawlenty? Tim, well, two things first. I mean, do you think he's going to run? I mean, it's no. the, every day the clock is ticking. Well, I mean, the urgency here is is pretty immediate. It is pretty immediate because Republicans have to fill. They didn't have. They didn't anticipate having to to run run for the U.S. Senate, our second U.S. Senate seat this coming year. They obviously knew they had to go for for Klobuchar. They had to find somebody there. They knew they had to find somebody for governor. They weren't anticipating having to find somebody for a second U.S. Senate seat at this point. So there's difficulty trying to figure out how to fill all of these because I'm not sure how deep the, 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 the well-known household names are among Republicans to run for this seat. I don't think for two reasons Plenty's going to run, or three reasons. One, I think right, the clock is ticking, and you're going to start to see perhaps people start to galvanize around Housley. Second, 
I don't think he wants to come back you know, from what he has is a very nice job right now where he makes a lot more money um, than he would as a senator, even though he may want to have a political career again. I'm not sure he wants to do that. And three, I'm not sure he can get the nomination. I think the Republican Party has moved sufficiently further to the right such that I'm not sure Pawlenty would actually get the nomination now in terms of if he were to run um, for the U.S. U.S. Senate seat within the Republican Party. Interesting. So, so you think? Because I, I, I mean, that's sort of what is out there is that right. he probably will not be run. And I don't see Tom Emmer's kind of indicated he's not. Uh, it's. Um, it looks like it could be Karen Housley. I think it could be, and for the Republicans, this would be good because I think for either Tina Smith or for Housley, if they have to go through um, a competitive convention endorsement fight and then a primary fight, not only does that take away resources that they could use for the general election, but clearly that would mean that the parties don't unite until sometime after August in the primaries. So if Housley pretty much gets a a, the consensus that she's going to be the candidate for the Republicans, that's going to make it a lot easier for her right now to do what? To start to do a lot of fundraising and to start to build a war chest as well as building her name. Because I'll have to say that you're right. Even though um, her husband may be famous, may be a hockey star, uh, the fact is I still don't think she is a, um, um, a household name across the No, absolutely not. Yeah, and so, so she faces the same type of challenges also that I think Tina Smith does. I essentially think we ought to be treating this race as an open seat. That I really don't think that because of her name rec- lack of name recognition and how much time she's not going to have been in the Senate, Tina Smith is, is almost not an incumbent. Okay. All right, let's take a break. You know, so after we come back, I'd really like to get your take on Oprah. All right? David Schultz on Oprah, running for president, possibly. That's coming up after this. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Uh, some final minutes here. Uh, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, is this for real? I'm not sure at the end of the day she really is. I think she attracted a lot of attention. She brings a lot of um, star power in terms of name recognition, but at the end of the day, uh, I'm, I'm not persuaded. I think that there's a lot of movement in the Democratic Party to try to find somebody, but I think at the end of the day, she, she is not a viable candidate for President of the United States. And I say that simply because I think you already have um, a lot of other people, whether it's Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, um, perhaps Joe Biden, who I think have stronger roots within the Democratic Party, and that while, yes, the parallels to Donald Trump running as an outsider to the party might make Oprah Winfrey popular, uh, I just don't see after the Trump presidency or after Trump being elected that the Democrats are necessarily going to go um, towards a, an Oprah Winfrey direction. It is Intriguing, though, because yes. she said, you know, um, and she's quoted Gail King, the CBS anchor, who's her longtime friend, said, you know, she's intrigued by it. Uh, certainly at the Golden Globes, that acceptance speech sounded like mm-hmm. she was running for something. Right. Uh, and, and so it is, you know, and I do go back to 2008 when she uh, campaigned for Barack Obama. Right. And I think 
there are people who give her credit for his win in the Iowa caucuses because she went to Iowa and campaigned for him. Yeah, she, she campaigned. I, I, you're absolutely right. I think she, I think she brings, uh, again, name recognition, branding. She brings in many ways many of the things that Trump brought when he took over the Republican Party. One difference being that I think Oprah Winfrey is probably not quite the same outsider to the Democratic Party um, as Trump was the Republican. I'm not quite sure if I can describe her as insider or, or somewhere on the periphery, but, but she's got a slightly different relationship. And the reason why I mention that is that, is that I think she would, would clearly do well, but I still think that somebody like a, a Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders um, running, as, um, you know, running as Democratic candidates would have stronger connections, you know, you know, within the Democratic Party. But but I'm never going to say no. Never going to say impossible after <laughs> Donald Trump. And, and also in the land of Jesse Ventura from many years ago, because, again, she brings that name recognition. She brings an ability to, to work with pop culture forums, you know, in the media in ways that are very, very powerful. There's lots of things that, that make her potentially as an attractive candidate. Whether she would be an effective president is a different story entirely because much in the same way that Donald Trump um, lacked government experience, you would have the same thing going with Oprah Winfrey, too. Right. Joe Biden, though, uh, he's 75 years old. I had to Google it. Mm -hmm. He'll be 77 two years from now. Right. Is that too old to run for president? Boy, people thought when Donald Trump ran at his age, that was too old, or Bernie He's Sanders. 70. Right. And, and we seem to be, you know, pushing the boundaries now in terms of saying that, that um, 70 doesn't seem to be a bar. I mean, other cultures in the world, you know, China and others, you know, people are, are in leadership positions, you know, well into their 70s to 80s. That clearly is going to be an issue some people are going to ask, but I don't think it's going to be the same issue, you know, with, with Biden's age um, that it might have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I'm, I'm not convinced that him at 77 puts him beyond the, you know, the, the running or the capacity um, to run or, or even the support, because there does seem to be a sense in which he's all but running also. The fact that he's been doing these, these speaking tours all across the United States this is this is the kind of the exploration at this point before actually running, right? And and, and I I agree with you. I mean, he seems to be everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. turning up everywhere. It just one of the issues, and obviously he he was coming off the tragic death of his son to cancer, and he clearly thought about it uh, even when Hillary Clinton was the prohibitive favorite. But he, I guess, he is somebody to watch as well. He is. And so right now, if, if we're doing our speculation, of course, it's Warren, it's Sanders, it's, it's Biden, it's Oprah Winfrey. Uh, those, those would probably be our, I'm, I'm hearing some other names perhaps out there, but those would be sort of the first echelon, Booker, um, um, uh, Cory Booker out in, out in New Jersey. So we have got probably about four or five people who are probably in the first tier um, in terms of running. But certainly she brings, that is Oprah Winfrey, name recognition yes. that, that puts her very high on the list if she were to decide to run. Okay. Professor David Schultz, please stay warm. I will. Same for you. <laughs> and be safe. All right. Thank you, sir. Good night. All right. The one and only David Schultz. Uh, you can also get check out his blog, Schultz's Take. I want to give a big shout out to 
Jonathan Lowe, our studio coordinator, and also David Josephson. Great to be back on on Saturday night. Take care. Stay warm. Go Vikings! We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 